Thank you all. Delighted to have you here. And I want to want to especially welcome President Ilvis. He's a, he's well known to Washington. Well known to. CSIS, and we're very grateful that he's uh, been willing to be with us this morning. I will tell you, he got up at 4 o'clock this morning in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He was up there with a, giving a speech yesterday and a dinner last night. So he has gone extraordinary. Every one of you that think you got up too early to get here to hear him, you've got no sympathy here up on the podium. He, this, is a, this is a man of extraordinary energy. And, uh, and of course, we see that in the way in which he's, he's leading Estonia. Uh, and uh, he was recently re-elected. He said, make this introduction short. I was just re-elected. I said, well, we've got to say a little more than that. Okay, <laughs> a little bit more than that. He, he was just re-elected, uh, of course, and had served as foreign minister and was ambassador here in Washington. Uh, and, uh, but he has really pioneered a transition for a country. I, it's remarkable. I, I think it is uh, exceptional because Estonia is small enough that you can make it work you know, but clever enough to really make it work. And it, it was making, it was marrying up uh, opportunity with necessity. This, you know, Estonia was the victim, probably of the first large-scale uh, cyber attack. And uh, the president saw in that an opportunity to transform, you know, the country in remarkable ways. So we're just kind of in the middle of it, I think. I, but it is still quite an exciting thing to watch. It's going to be a bellwether, I think, for the rest of us. And so we, we're grateful that he's willing to share those insights with us today. Uh, I will also say, just so that you're aware of it, he is heading up an effort for the European Union looking at the application of IT technology to the health field. And of course, this is there is a demographic crisis facing Europe. There's one facing us all over, but especially Europe. And he is taking the lead to find ways in which uh, the IT industry can help with this problem because it's something that has to be mastered. And of course, it's, it's a testament to his vision. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome President Ilvis, and, and uh, we're very grateful to have him here today. Thank you, sir. Well, good morning, and uh, it's, it is great to be back here. Uh, this is uh, one of my favorite towns. Uh, there are quite a few that are nice, but Washington is one place where uh, you can meet more policy thinkers on a corner than you can meet an entire country someplace. But anyway, I'll be quick. I was going to talk about um, sort of I mean, my alternative title I thought was going to offer is the good, bad, and the very ugly. But since uh, there's not much time, I'll just talk about the bad and the ugly. <laughs> if you want to have questions about the good, then uh, in the Q&A part, go ahead and I can tell you what, uh, what we're doing. I would, I would uh, disagree with John there. And one thing, we, I think one of the reasons why we were attacked uh, in 2007 was that we had already done so much. And so much of, our, uh, so much of what we do in Estonia uh, is, so, is so IT dependent. Um, and we are, uh, I, I mean, we have basically we, uh, well, I can talk about it later. I mean, otherwise, I want time to talk about the bad and the very ugly. Um, one of the first aerial bombardments, or actually the first aerial bombardment of uh, civilians, uh, took place in World War One on the 19th of January, 1915, when two German Zeppelins dropped 24 50-kilogram bombs on uh, four villages. Uh, four people were killed. The, the uh, damage done was 7,740 pounds. Um, and while it might have been minor, the real thing was that no one had ever thought of bombs coming from above or anything coming from above. Everything had to do with war had always been a two-dimensional affair. Um, and if you go from the... the uh, 50 kilogram bombs that were dropped in 1915 to uh, 30 years later in Hiroshima, you can I think that's something that outdoes Moore's law when it comes to uh, sort of escalation. Um, I would argue that as, um, as aerial bombardment changed completely the, uh, the state of affairs in warfare and thinking about war, um, so too, cyber will change. Cyber war or cyber attacks 
uh, will change uh, dramatically our thinking about w war and warfare. Now, this does not mean the old stuff's going to go away. I mean, uh, you know, we people still throw spears and shoot bows and arrows, and I think that we will still have tanks and all kinds of other things, but we have a new dimension uh, that we have to deal with, and my metaphor for what we're dealing with in the cyber world is that we're not, we're long past the Zeppelin phase, but where, um, where, may, uh, where we are is that the, the world out there is at the, uh, at the level of an F-35 or a Raptor, uh, and we're worried about Zeppelins. Uh, and so I think this is uh, my, my call for us to start thinking much more seriously about these issues, and be also because these issues are not, they're not the traditional military style of thinking. Um, uh, and maybe I'll just go through how things have developed. Uh, I mean, Sony got, uh, became well known because of uh, the uh, 2007 DDoS attacks. Does anyone know what a D DDoS attack is? Yes? Okay. If it don't, I can explain. But anyway, basically what it did was it, it, it shut down servers in the country. And where DDoS attacks were nothing new, uh, they had been used as a form of extortion for years against companies. You know, you know we, we shut uh, your have a internet-based uh, business, you get shut down, you know, pay us $100,000, and then we'll let you open your server again. And we had, you know, malware and other things. But this was, this was the first time that it actually had been directed against the, uh, basically, a country, all aspects of the country, government sites, banks, newspapers. Um, and, uh, well, we were frankly shocked when this happened. Uh, what is the mechanism of attacks like this? Well, I mean, the, the same people who do the, uh, uh, who send you the Viagra ads and uh, uh, are, uh, are which are the spammers, you just basically, they just <laughs> provide their services to uh, whoever buys them, and you can also, they can do DDoS attacks. It's the same, same people, same mechanism. These are organized criminal gangs. Um, and you can rent botnets to do attacks like this by the hour or by the day. Um, and you can target, you, you target that what, you, uh, what you're, the person buying your service tells you to target. So when we, when we were attacked in 2007, uh, botnets really attacked uh, all aspects of society. It was not, uh, it was not they were not targeting a, a PayPal site or something. Um, and so you have a country that already is extremely reliant upon the net, where 98% uh, of bank transactions are done on the, are done on the web, where 97% you know, of people tr file their income taxes on the web. Uh, people, I mean, you name it, we do it on the web. Uh, and a country that, in fact, has been uh, sort of at the forefront of use of IT and IT solutions uh, for, for government public services as well as in uh, as well as uh, the private sector and also the country that invented Skype um, then uh, it had quite a major effect now the interesting thing on this was that it was I mean as I said you know the way these botnets work is that someone buys time this was bought time someone bought it um, and moreover I mean, those of you who sort of have little math, I mean, you expect that when you have something like this happening that the, uh, the attacks kind of follow a normal or Gaussian distribution over time. No, this was completely discrete. You know, GMT 0000, boom, the sort of attacks start, proceed for 24 hours at 23.59.59, the attacks are over. So basically, a country gets massively attacked, all aspects of society are attacked, uh, it lasts precisely one day on a political day, the 9th of May, which for us in Europe is, the, is Europe Day, but for the Soviet, uh, Russians, it is the day of victory because Stalin back in May 9th said, no, we want to we beat the Germans on May 9th, even though they had been beaten by May 8th. And so anyway, this continues. <laughs> um, now, uh, it's important to keep in mind this was a political move. This was, you know... The continuation of policy by other means, uh, and the policy was to protest 
uh, protests, the, the <laughs> taking a Soviet stra statue from a square and putting it in a place where it would be less offensive. Um, and so this, and that's why the May 9th date. Um, now, when the, when the started, of course, um, cyber attacks were not really things that people worried about. Uh, um, we started to worry about it, um, where we showed that even, uh, I mean, we began to realize that even non-state actors can do things or can be employed to do this. Um, and the big effect, the positive effect for us was that we've been, uh, we had been for years, uh, because of our interest in cyber, uh, lobbying uh, NATO, uh, where we are an ally, uh, to deal more with this. And the upshot of being attacked was the establishment of the uh, NATO Center for uh, Center of Excellence uh, in Tallinn. So actually, as often happens, the people who ordered this scored an own goal, their own goal, and uh, you know, later on we can all be happy that we were attacked. Now, um, things move, things uh, sort of moved on very quickly. Uh, a year later, after the cyber attacks during the Georgian War in 2008, August, uh, you can, I would direct you to read uh, the uh, January 2010 issue of the Small Wars Journal, uh, where's a brilliant description of, an, of how um, when the Russians were attacking, or right before the Russians attacked a place, they, uh, they did cyber attacks, DDoS attacks, on that area's uh, servers. So basically, you know, sort of increasing the fog of war. I mean, people are, are not, don't know what's going on around them. You have DDoS attacks, sites are taken down, and then the missiles come in, or the tanks come in. So this is, I mean, this is already combining what has been called for the last several years kinetic attacks. I mean, all the, all the pre-digital attacks were, uh, were kinetic, something hits you and kills you. Well, now these were, so the kinetic attacks, be they bombs, guns, or bows and arrows, um, are used more effectively because you basically uh, create this foggy situation and no one knows what's going on. Um, I think that that's actually, um, I mean, all of that is fairly primitive. I mean, when we talk about cybersecurity, the issue is not, are not DDoS attacks. I mean, there's, there are certain things which I'll get, get to later on which are interesting about DDoS attacks, but really they're not important. Uh, they're unpleasant. We have ways of getting around them. During the Georgian War, we offered all kinds of uh, mirror sites, and uh, they kept, we can, kept them up. We had our own experiences with this. Our CERT um, actually had, was fairly fortunate that we, we had uh, the first uh, digital or computer elections in Estonia, uh, online elections. In uh, two months before 2007, we thought every hacker in the world would want to disrupt them, so we gamed all kinds of possible attacks. Uh, we weren't, we did, that was not disrupted, but you know, we knew what to do with the DDoS attacks, so we actually handled it better. But today, I mean, we're in a new world. I mean, if you look at um, things such as Stuxnet, um, and which is just a single in, uh, instance of uh, what of a virus that attacks a SCADA system. A SCADA system is a supervisory control and data acquisition uh, program, and basically everything today is a, uh, everything today <laughs> runs on a SCADA system. I mean, your car has SCADA systems, and I remember recently reading how using Bluetooth, someone managed to, uh, using the Bluetooth connection to the car radio, managed to, to turn on the brakes. Um, back in the old days, when I was growing up in New Jersey, uh, I'd go to my supermarkets and people would go around with clipboards and they're checking out how many cans of peas were there and when they'd have to do the, bring in the next can of peas or the whatever, milk. Um, well, that's not, doesn't, you don't see those people clipboards anymore because everything is run on a, by a SCADA system that says, okay, order more milk, we're r running low on peas. Um, we can go on from, I mean, it go into any area actually where we, uh, we are, uh, with, where feedback loops on the internet are basically keeping our lives proceeding uh, sort of well. Uh, so now if uh, something like Stuxnet can be used to disrupt uh, 
disrupt the uh, Iranian uh, Iranian uh, bomb program by being snuck into an offline system, one where affecting a uh, infecting an offline system. Uh, which has no connection to the world. Somehow someone still managed to get that virus in there. Well, then we're, when we think about what the possibilities are, they can be pretty dramatic, pretty drastic. And this is where it's already beginning to look ugly and very ugly. Um, what do we do with this? Um, well, I think that um, we, slow steps are being taken in the area of cyber. <laughs> I think uh, one of the major steps, which uh, was not noted by many people but us, <laughs> was the, the step taken last year where the United States uh, Department of Defense said that uh, we do not have to meet a cyber attack in kind. We reserve the right to respond however we need to. Uh, this is one of the big issues that we've had with cyber and Article 5, Article 4, what, uh, what do you do? I mean, basically our entire Defense in NATO is based on the idea that you respond appropriately uh, to the same degree. You know, if someone blows up a bridge, you don't start World War III with a nuclear attack. The question is, what do you do in the case of cyber war? First of all, I mean, you don't know who's doing it. Uh, you may eventually figure it out, and you most likely do figure it out eventually, but that may take a year. Uh, but, I mean, if you have an electrical plant, it's hit by a missile. Well, you know where the missile came from. You can track it out. You saw it on the radar. And then basically, you know you're going to go and take out their electrical plant somewhere. Um, well, if you take out an electrical plant, uh, as uh, I think there was an experiment President Obama did uh, two weeks ago, yes, on sort of taking out a New York City electrical plant. I mean, he didn't take it out. But I mean, you can do it with a, with a cyber attack. Well, I mean, if that happens, you don't know where it came from. What do you do? Uh, and so uh, when the uh, Department of Defense last year said that we will not, <laughs> I mean, the assumption that we will have to respond with a cyber attack is, does not hold, and, we, and that is, a, I think, an important step, and I, think, I believe it sent a strong signal. Uh, uh, NATO is finally realizing that cyber is a serious issue, that um, uh, at the Lisbon summit, uh, NATO did decide that uh, cyber would be part of the agenda, though I would per say here I'm a little worried that its, it's, uh, it's interest is beginning to flag a bit because there are other issues, and I do hope that uh, in Chicago there is a strong effort made to, to move beyond the commitment to deal with cyber in uh, Lisbon, but moves on to actually dealing things uh, a little more seriously. I'll come back to that at the end. Um, but I think we realize, at least in NATO, that, uh, that we are vulnerable, that cyber is weaponizable, and that we have to do something possibly together. The challenge, I would argue, is what to do and, uh, um, and how to proceed. Um, what I like to do is, in very broad brushstrokes, outline the kinds of issues we should be looking at. Because, I, first of all, I mean, you know, I'm invited everywhere because of April 2000. And seven May two thousand and seven, and that's so old hat. I mean, it's so yesterday. This, um, first of all, the, I think we need general understanding of of how computerized we are and how vulnerable we are, because um, SCADA systems really do control everything, and um, and especially in a country like ours, where we have made computerization of virtually all government services uh, so, uh, priority and. Uh, and are we, I mean, given the system that we have, I would say that um, while other countries have the capabilities to actually have, have a similarly digitized government, uh, they have not done it. We have, and uh, with uh, 330 plus, both public and government, as well as commercial services that we get using our, our key code card, um, uh, everything is digital in my country, uh, be it e-health, where I chair the Commission Task Force, or, or um, e-voting, digital prescriptions, where you can get a prescription anywhere, anywhere you want, and if you run out, you call your doctor, and then you go to any pharmacy in the country. Um, all those things are so vulnerable that we, have to, we think very seriously about SCADA systems, not just uh, DDoS attacks. Um, <clears throat> when we look at cyber, we also have to... Um, I mean, begin to look at the pattern of attacks and how they're organized. Um, we see that 
we have a be it DDoS or be it the attacks on um, on our ministries, our Ministry of Defense, the Defense Department, we see a new form of a new form of um, what I would call a public-private partnership. Um, the public-private partnership is between the criminal mafia of certain countries um, and then the the state. Um, and since we always think of PPP in a very positive sense, well, this is a new form of PPP. Uh, be, it, be it, as the, the aforementioned botnets, which were rented by someone to attack a wide array of countries, and with these very discreet attacks, I mean, someone had to pay for it. it you know, some very silly journalists have fallen for line, oh, this was a response of civil society. Uh, I would say sort of, um, yes, bull. Um, you don't organize DDoS attacks, they're paid for. Uh, now, what if we move beyond to the kinds of attacks that are done to, uh, uh, to get into your systems and our systems, um, you, know, you read about, oh, those are just students in a dormitory in Beijing. No, I mean, students, I mean, the kinds of attacks, the sophistication of the attacks, um, I mean, they require a degree of organization coordination that, you know, civil, if civil society were that organized and the students were that organized, then uh, we would be seeing a flowering of Jeffersonian democracy in, uh, in the places that are creating these things. Um, so um, the, the, when we look at the threats, then we, know we, can al we already see that the people who are doing these things are kind of, uh, I mean, doing this with with uh, the minimal, minimally the approval and knowledge and acceptance of the country. I mean, we look at Russia, every ISP goes through the FSB. Uh, you know what an ISP is? The FSB is the, is the, is the organization, is the successor organization to the KGB. Now, um, you, know, you know, we have discussions of deep, deep packet searches and so forth here. I mean, there, every ISP goes through the secret police. Now, if you think that they don't know what's going out and what they're doing and what is being done, well, then, uh, uh, well, <laughs> then you'll believe anything and I can sell you a bridge. Um, so, and I think what, what the problem is, we have, uh, we have, uh, however, focus too much when we talk about cyber security, cyber war, on the, um, on the military side of things, the, 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 the kinds of attacks and what they're directed on. Because I would say, to quote a famous American, really, we don't, shouldn't focus on the milita military side, but uh, it's the economy, stupid. Uh, for technologically advanced countries, including my own, where we're the, the R&D headquarters of Skype, it is, in fact, intellectual property theft that is the real worry. Okay, and I'm talking about Okta. I'm not talking about WIPO. I'm, I mean, it's, that ha that's small, that's minor. Uh, what I'm talking about is basically the stuff that makes advanced Western countries uh, function, which is intellectual innovation, intellectual property. Um, and I think we're slowly beginning to see that, uh, that countries are realizing the, uh, how dependent we are upon these things. Uh, it's, not the, it's not the kid downloading a, a torrent of movies. It really has to do with uh, what a country that doesn't have to pump its wealth out of the ground depends upon. Um, I'll give you one example. I mean, uh, for years we have been talking to the UK about getting involved in cybersecurity and uh, the NATO side, and they weren't really that interested, to be polite. And then um, suddenly last year at the Munich Security Conference, uh, the Prime Minister, David Cameron, devotes two-thirds of his speech to cybersecurity, immediately followed by the Foreign Secretary, William Hague, who devoted his entire speech to cybersecurity. And so I went to Dame... Pauline Neville-Jones, who was an old friend, and I said, so what happened? I mean, you know, you, why did this? And she said, well, we finally realized that our, our, our wealth comes from intellectual property, and it's being stolen every day. Every day it's being sucked out. And uh, if, uh, I noticed here two weeks ago, uh, reading the Wall Street Journal, that um, 
Mr. Sean Henry, uh, who's at the FBI in charge of these issues, uh, mentioned a company that had lost in one evening 10 years of intellectual work and a billion dollars of investment during those 10 years, and he just went Now, I mean, who, where it went, we can, well, we more or less know, you know, there are not too many options on where it went, but, um, but basically this is, this is what, our, what modern economies depend upon. It's our own intellectual, uh, intellectual work, uh, our research and development. And now if you spend all that time developing something, and uh, you've never gotten to the patent stage even, and even if they did a follow patents over there where they stole it, it doesn't matter anyway. And your 10 years of work is just gone. Um, and the, so as uh, Dame Pauline Neville Jones explained, we realized that our economy is, really, is the real victim of all of this, that you, know, you can sort of uh, attack MI5, MI6, but, uh, but the real damage is not in the sort of the traditional military side of things, it's uh, or the espionage side of things. It is the economy of the UK, which is losing all of its well, losing it. I would say this this is piracy. Now, when we talk about piracy, sort of in the ACTA sense, I mean this is this is real piracy, uh, and I would say it is as dangerous. Um, and threatening to modern states as piracy was in its more primitive forms off the Barbary Coast in the beginning of the 19th century, or today off the coast of Somalia. Um, uh, and piracy is, I think, the ideal sort of uh, the perfect uh, metaphor here. Uh, I think the one the, the talk about piracy when you talk about ACTA is, is all off base. But I mean, basically, it is uh, in the traditional sense of the Barbary Coast. It is a private public partnership, state actors condone bad behavior or turn a blind eye to it. Um, I mean, let's recall the Barbary states uh, were part of the Ottoman Empire. I mean, the, the Ottoman Empire was not known for tolerating much bad behavior uh, uh, against them, so they could control that. But if you were sort of, uh, you know, dragooning U.S. sailors and holding them for for ransom, that was fine by them, and, and very similarly, no one wanted to go and uh, hit Istanbul, uh, or the uh, or the capital of the uh, uh, capital of the Ottoman Empire. Everyone wanted to have a good relationship with the with the Sultan, but uh, then we went or you went off to whack the pirates. Uh, but which also, incidentally, as a historical fact, was the, f the first declared war by the United States was 1815 against the Barbary States. So I just say that so some of the people listening who condone this kind of behavior would think about it. But um, as with bar uh, the Barbary States, uh, pi piracy today can only be met by head-on action on our part, um, which leads me to the, um, the, some of the difficulties, some of the things we need to do. Um, if the bad guys are using a public-private partnership and uh, subcontracting out their bad behavior to uh, students in a dormitory or, quote, civil society, then, um, then I think we have to think ourselves about this uh, and how do, we, how do we proceed. I mean, this came, I mean, the first time I saw this, I gave a speech, or to, uh, we, together with Carl Bildt, we addressed uh, a big audience in the uh, Royal Institute of Security Studies in, in Stockholm. And, you know, we did our usual song and dance. Carl and I are both big on cybersecurity, and we talked about all the DDoS stuff and all this stuff. And suddenly the guy, this guy stood up and he said, well, I'm head of uh, cybersecurity for Ericsson. That's the Ericsson of Sony Ericsson. Uh, and he said, you know, you guys have no idea. I mean, what you talk about is really child's play. I mean, we are attacked morning, noon, and night. They try to get into us every possible way. We're constantly discovering malware. And believe me, neither the Estonian Ministry of Defense nor the Swedish Ministry of Defense offers, uh, you know, a sort of <laughs> a small amount of the interest that we provide for cyber attacks. Um, and so, uh, from that, we saw that, and then and his plea was, well, why don't you do something? And, we, and from that, I started thinking, well, the problem is the bad guys are doing a, a public-private partnership, but we are not. 
we are not doing it in this way because one of the things that makes liberal Western democracy work is a strong firewall between the public sector and the private sector. Uh, I mean, this as opposed to saying, you know, the system in Russia where basically it's all the same. Um, there's no difference, I see. Anders Oslin there, <laughs> he can tell you more about that. But anyway, uh, you know, we you know competitive bidding and all this other stuff. We don't give secrets to the private sector, or it's a real complicated thing. The private sector itself is all, is, is, especially in hard economic times, doesn't want to talk to anyone else. Um, and I'm saying this model doesn't work anymore because uh, if you have state-funded, state-organized criminal behavior. Uh, to benefit states, to benefit the criminals, and we maintain the current model of things, in, at least in the cyber, we're going to lose. Um, you, know, um, you know, we have, um, I don't know how many of you have uh, ever used as great devices made by a company called Huawei, um, but when you realize that it's a PLA uh, well, initiated by the PLA, I mean, it, we don't really know who owns it, but uh, basically it's a publicly owned company and then you don't have any public owners. But anyway, I mean, think about it, that's something we use to communicate with uh, with our computers. Um, and you go, and PLA has this, that was really the owner. I mean, it sort of gives a uh, new uh, meaning to the term Intel inside, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> so if we... Um, so we look at the threats. I mean, basically, um, they're all over, and uh, we haven't really started to address what the uh, what the base is, what is possible. I mean, think for example, uh, you know, in the same terms with, uh, with the New York Stock Exchange. I mean, uh, we if you get some bad bad uh, malware in there, I mean, it, it doesn't have to take down the stock exchange. You could just change the numbers. Uh, and suddenly you can see companies, I mean, you have no idea, you don't even, uh, you have no idea, suddenly the numbers are different. Um, I mean, there are all kinds of things that are done, I'm sure, by the New York Stock Exchange to deal with it. Um, but the, the vulnerabilities are just so immense, the more and the more we, uh, the more we are dependent upon cyber, uh, the good cyber, the more, the good IT, the more vulnerable we become. So, I would say basically we have to deal with two issues on this front. One, we need to come up with new ways to talk to the private sector in both directions, from government to private sector and vice versa, from the private sector to the government sector. It all has to be much, uh, it needs to be far less ad hoc than it has been up till now, which is basic is now when someone finds out they've been penetrated and something's been stolen, then they come and complain, but otherwise they re rely on off the shelf virus software, and uh, that's not good enough. Um, so we need to do something, we need to rethink how we, how we deal between, from the government side and the private sector side in ways that maintains our strict separation. You know, we don't want to get into the whole corruption thing that ruins all kinds of countries because there's no difference between the private and the public sector. Um, but we do need to, um, do something differently. I don't, I'm not offering any solutions. I don't know what it is, but I think there should be much more of a dialogue or a colloquy between the, the private and the public sector on these issues, because otherwise we just lose. Secondly, one of the real problems that we have with, um, in cyber and what really weakens us, um, and here there, so, uh, we have one little solution, but basically is that you know, in, the, in, the, in 1945 or 1944, when you wanted the best and the brightest, you found them at universities, and you, you know, Edward Teller and Izard and Oppenheimer, and you pay them, you know, the piddling salary of a Columbia University professor, which is about $3,000 at the time a year, uh, and you take them out to Los Alamos, and so maybe they make $3,100 a year, and they're perfectly happy. Today, uh, none of us. I mean, I talked to General Alexander last year. The problem with the United States, the problem with tiny Estonia, is that we cannot hire, you know, the, these people. And we can't hire, uh, I cannot hire the, um, you know, the chief engineer, head of research and development of Skype. I mean, he works for me pro bono, but, <laughs> but, but I can't hire, I mean, you can't hire, you know, uh, you know, all the geniuses in Silicon Valley, or any of the geniuses in Silicon Valley, okay, they're 24, but they're making millions of dollars a year, and the U.S. government can't afford that. 
Whereas, um, so, so you have the best and the brightest who just you can't really use unless you apply, to, you do other, do it other ways, appeal to their, their, their better instincts, you know, just like the head of R&D at Skype is, does it for me pro bono. Well, maybe you can get people, you know, uh, other geniuses to work for you pro bono. Uh, but we, we have a, we figured something else out, and, uh, and I'm glad to see that, that also the Maryland National Guard has. In fact, I think there's a connection between these two. But basically, we have created something called a, um, a cyber National Guard. Now, you know National Guards, at least in my country, National Guards, uh, people who don't, usually don't live in cities. They, uh, they like to sort of be grown-up Boy Scouts, run around in fatigues, drink beer with the guys afterwards, and shoot, shoot rifles and... Uh, and it knows fun. I mean, you know, everyone, I mean, this is what, you know, just, we're just grown-up boys. But in fact, um, uh, we, we created a cyber National Guard, which uh, basically consists of all of those people who work at, I mean, people work at Skype, they work in, you know, the, the, the IT departments of uh, web development companies. Uh, we have lots of startups in Estonia that are really very hip and cool and and people, however, for some odd reason, feel patriotic enough that they like to spend a certain number of hours a week sort of figuring out this stuff. I mean, it's also, there's a certain prestige element because you need to get a security clearance in order to work for the, uh, I mean, to do this stuff on for free in your spare time. But that raises the bar, and it's more difficult to get in there. And of course, they're dealing with sexy stuff because, you know, they're dealing with saving your country from being demolished by bad guys who are doing it for money. But it works. And so, I mean, I don't know how many we have now, 150 people who do this, something like 150. Um, and they come up with really neat stuff. And they do it because they think it's great to spend your free time sort of coming up with new and neat stuff that, you know, I mean, they're, they're white-hatted hackers, basically, is the one way of putting it. I mean, uh, and, um, you know, Making a lot of money, I guess, becomes boring for people after a while. Um, no, I mean, I'm glad it, it does become boring. Um, so that's one thing that I think oh, we should be looking at is uh, developing our own creative public-private partnerships in this regard because, uh, you know, they're doing it over there. We shouldn't be doing it here. Uh, on the more organized side of things, and I'll wrap it up and because I've already spoken too long, but basically on the sort of real government side, we really need to get uh, cracking on the Chicago summit to move ahead um, because the, the pace, of, uh, pace of working on cyber issues, which got off to a big start in Lisbon, um, now is beginning to flag a bit. Um, I mean, on the good side, awareness of cyber issues is much higher in... Uh, allied capitals than it was three or five years ago. Um, too many are in the so what phase in, uh, in NATO. They're not quite sure. Um, NATO needs to educate its own members much more uh, because, I mean, there are countries, frankly, that are less developed than cyber, and if uh, someone runs in with their hair on fire demanding Article 5 because of a mere DDoS attack, which they get for the first time, we don't want to start a nuclear war over that either. So it's not simply that we have awareness of what the threats are, but we also be able to calibrate what the threats are. Um, and um, secondly, you know, our defense cuts spending and def uh, cuts in defense spending isn't helping us. I'm proud to say that... Uh, we're one of the three or four countries that does its 2% uh, for NATO funding, and we haven't cut it. Um, but the real issue is basically getting more cooperation inside NATO, and I would say the other issue, even, even worse, is the EU today. Um, and then we have to get out of the paradigm that we've had up till now in cyber defense, which is the intelligence paradigm. Um, interoperability is the paradigm we should be looking at. We're still thinking, to, I mean, you know, countries don't share intel, really. I mean, okay, there's the, the U.S. and the U.K. maybe a little bit more, but otherwise, you know, you don't share these things. Uh, whereas, you know, the U.S. is perfectly willing to uh, take a French bomb and because it's, you know, the, put it under a U.S. bomber jet, I mean, that's the inter interoperability part, that works. Um, but we're still in the intel espionage phase. In our paradigm is wrong. We need to understand that almost a priori, cyber attacks will come from outside your borders. 
because it'd be real dumb to do a cyber attack from your own country because basically all of the laws and things you have available to you to do get that person or get get the organization or whatever is there. So it's going to come from outside. Um, but if we don't cooperate with with our allies, well, then we're not going to really have a very effective way of dealing with these issues. So, um, and the only thing you can make you feel better is that in the EU it's even worse. Uh, the stove piping, the stove piping effect there, where you have basically four different uh, directorates or ministries in U.S. parlance or departments, deal with cybersecurity, and they don't talk to each other at all. Uh, so, um, I mean, uh, Celia Malmström, the uh, brilliant and charming uh, commissioner from Sweden who is attempting to do a little reform so that actually it all comes under one hat. I know that's not so easy because the awareness on the part of governments isn't that great because when I was in the European Parliament I had to move to another office. Um, the office had no computer, 300 mails a day basically on EU you know, Parliament business every day but there's no computer. I, I mean, I, I got a computer, and then I asked the guy who brought me, like, you know, how did this guy before me do this? And, and um, he said, uh, well, his uh, secretary printed out all, all his emails. I got all 300. And, I said, and how did he answer them? He said, well, he dictate to her. And I said, no, no, that's not the point. And I said, where is he now? He said, oh, he's a minister. In, and I was basically saying it's a large boot-shaped country. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, that was years ago. He's not their minister anymore. But basically, I mean, the awareness of cyber issues, and this is a big problem where I think Estonia and the United States uh, have a leg up, is that uh, right now at the senior level of decision-making in most countries in Europe, there are people who, have, who are too old. I mean, 40 is too old. In the U.S. and in Estonia, people who are older than 40 know something about, you know, programming, the under, they, have an, they have a clue. But in too many countries, the, I mean, the, if you look at the below 40s in Europe, they all know it, they all understand it, they have figured it out. The senior policymaking level, unfortunately, has not gotten it yet, which means that it's very difficult to get decisions. It's, so often you get poo-pooed by people saying, oh, what is this, this is just a toy, you know, I mean, it's kind of like, and I don't think we ought to be, you know, one of the great, one of the, the best things that ever happened to the West, and in this kind of attitude, was when Adolf Hitler sort of thought that you know Werner von Braun's V2 was a toy and it was not worth dealing with. Thank God he did it because, I mean, he woke up three years later that it was you know it actually was worked pretty well. Well, I mean, I think we're kind of like the Adolf Hitlers right now, saying no, no, this stuff doesn't really matter. It doesn't you know, no, it's not interesting. Uh, so we need to uh, we need to change a lot of minds. We're happy to do it with you because we know what, what, how important it is. Um, we, our approach is very different. I can talk about that if the, in the Q&A if you would like. But at least I'm, I'm glad to be in the country that's number two in Internet freedom. <laughs> um, freedom House rates the United States as number two. <laughs> Thank you. My, my job is to stand between the, the president and uh, enraged uh, Russian and Huawei employees. So what I, actually, what I will actually do is not do a heck of a lot. I'm just going to field questions. So if we have questions from the audience, there was some fairly interesting stuff in that speech. So uh, I hope we can. Do I have to start? I mean, no, we've got one in the back, please. Thank you. Um, John Pihak, Carnegie Mellon University. Um, well, I guess a quick comment and a question. I, I can't help but say that this may ne there may never have been a better time to enlist the best and the brightest from high tech, because unlike the days of Edward Teller, you don't have to get them to move to the New Mexico desert to help you out. And uh, someone who's bounced between public and private sectors, there are great ways to pull them in. Um, but you have to pay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the public-private partnership implies that if the, if, the, if the states were more active in, in combating this, that a lot more could be done. Uh, clearly, there are states that are big customers of cyber attack uh, uh, illegal organizations. Um, are they more intertwined than that? And, and you know, how would you make advantage, take advantage of that to go after them if, if they so wanted to? 
Well, we, we haven't figured that one out yet. I mean, we have, uh, we, uh, in international law, the best thing that exists is the Council of Europe uh, Convention, which has been not only uh, signed and ratified by most of the countries of the, of the Council of Europe, which is not the EU, but also by the United States, by Canada, Japan, the Philippines. That's kind of odd that, you know, all these non-European countries. But there are some European countries that refuse to sign it. Uh, Russia doesn't, will not sign it. Um, and uh, so we have no legal options. And then uh, basically the best we can do is work on defense. Um, we can do, I guess, we can, if we figure out who's behind it, we can uh, nab them when they come to do a, want to enjoy their vacation. Or you can block their coming into uh, the EU, as we did with the people, some of the people who actually were silly enough to to boast about it, so we just put them on the EU blacklist, so they can't go to can't go to Paris or Cannes, and uh, and then we get big demarches from Moscow. Why are we discriminating against the person who boasted he took down our internet? Um, so, I mean, those things. But it, we are fairly limited, you know. I mean, until until I think we get the get to something which is serious enough that we actually, uh, you know, the U.S. uses its mate. 2010 doctrine saying that we don't have to reply in kind, but uh, we're not there yet. We may get there someday. I don't know. I'm going to take the moderator's prerogative and ask a follow-on question, uh, which is I've been meeting with uh, NATO officials for the last regularly for the last couple of months, and it does indeed look like uh, cybersecurity is not a priority for the Chicago summit. And when you ask them why, what they'll say is, well, we've taken care of it. You know, we've checked the box. Uh, we've set up a new directorate. And they, they have done some, some good things. What do you think NATO needs to do next? What is it you would do to put this on the Chicago agenda? Well, the, really, the fundamental problem is that it's, uh, I mean, what we are doing or have been developing is something for the NATO structure. I mean, basically, it's for, Brussels can feel good. For NATO as an org, I mean, that's that means that the you know the building with the, with the you know big iron whatever sculpture that's safe, and I mean it's various outposts. But I mean NATO is an alliance of countries, and there is no serious progress. You know we don't have uh, I mean we do have a cyber center of excellence in Tallinn where we have you know basically intellectuals and officers from various uh, countries. But it's, I mean, we're, they're dealing with the philosophical sort of game theory and that end of things. They're not sort of developing a strategy that would be implemented by all of our, all of our allies. And it's, it's the interoperability metaphor that I use. I mean, so that it's, you know, we have to go, it's, our mindset is still in the intel mindset. No sharing. There isn't this regular discussion. You know, you're not designing, you know, sort of, how your weapons work together. Um, we have to get to that stage. Okay, great. Uh, we've got one there. Thanks. Wait for the microphone, please. Hi, Keith Smith. I have a question uh, for you, Alma. The A lot of the work we do involves contact with EU officials and members of European Parliament, as you know. And the, a lot of this is, is done by email, back and forth. And I, I have the impression, after I was in Brussels about two weeks ago, that their lack of security, I'm very nervous about sending them anything uh, sensitive anymore. Because I could see that, in fact, the security that they're dealing with is so thin. And some of the attitudes uh, that uh, people within the European uh, Commission, for instance, some members of parliament, but mainly in the commission, is so lackadaisical about this, and the idea that, well, this is, you know, we're this free and open societies, and we don't need to do all of this. I'm very nervous about doing joint projects with people in the EU as, as a result. Do you have any advice on how we can get around that? Um, well, uh, adopt the Estonian key card and say that you won't talk to people unless you, they use the key, the binary key code. Uh, where all mail is encrypted in a way that it's almost impossible to get in. And then, uh, then they'll say, what? And they'll say, well, it's an EU thing. Uh, I mean, it's an EU member state. We've taken over from them, and you just are not uh, with the program. I mean, that's one way of doing it. Uh, on the other hand, I would say, yes, cyber, 
the whole idea of cybersecurity is, uh, is I mean, I think, is, has only now beginning to sort of peter into the consciousness of some people. Um, and of course, we do have the problem that some societies so, are, are so unreliant on computers that they wouldn't know that they've been hacked or cyber attacked because it's just, it's just um, no, we have a lot of education to do. I mean, it, it's a, a problem we face all the time. I mean, the, the bare essentials of uh, sort of of a modern uh, sort of organization like the EU, uh, which, which would say, or I mean, we have we don't have an uh, an EU legal signature yet, even though we, I mean, we've had a legal signature law since uh, 1999, 13 years ago. The EU doesn't get it. I mean, they just you know, they, uh, e services, you know, I don't know. I mean, the report I'm working on, e health. Um, which allowed me to see the state of affairs in all over the EU. I mean, there you can basically say, well, you know, the UK is okay, Catalonia is okay, Denmark, Sweden, Finland are good, we're brilliant, uh, <laughs> Germany's okay, but otherwise we're not there. I mean, Europe is not there, and it's not only their level development, but it, they, I mean, they would be developing if they sort of thought about it, but they're not, and instead. It's very hard to communicate the understanding of how sophisticated things are. But even Estonians within the EU, I mean, are they up to speed on this? I don't know. I mean, um, I mean, they should be. It may, maybe they're not. I mean, but um, way, at least, and uh, every Estonian, any Estonian official of the EU should be able to uh, to communicate with you in a secure way. Uh, just using his uh, key card. Um, we have one on the side and then one in the back. Uh, Rich Koslerich from George Mason University. Uh, it seems like there's a counterpart from the cyber world to what you've just described in the real world, uh, and that relates to trade in counterfeit and forged uh, commodities. Uh, and just as uh, on the cyber side, you can have uh, systems undermined, so on the real side by counterfeit uh, electronic goods, you can undermine systems as well. And it seems to call out for the same kind of public-private partnership to begin to address those security challenges that you've described in the cyber world. Mm -hmm. That's a good idea. I don't know anything about it, but I'll, I mean, I'll look into it. That sounds good. To the EU <coughs> report. Well, I don't know. I mean, we have. Uh, I mean, I think we should be doing it in NATO, basically. I mean, uh, not not. A, I mean, if you don't do it in the EU, which is one way of coordinating things, I should say just. By the way, there are only 12,000 people in the bureaucracy. This is a myth propagated by certain people, or lots of people all over, but certainly don't read the, <clears throat> the Wall Street Journal on this issue, at least. There's 12,000 people in Brussels working in the so-called bureaucracy. There's no, there's not a bureaucracy. Um, but, um, I mean, I think we need all the, all the cooperation we can get, be it in NATO, be it in the EU, um, you can't get policies going in the EU unless you have, you know, basically a lot of people on board. Um, I mean, you can't get them going because you can't get the money. Uh, I mean, all of these things require funding, and um, that's not um, unless we get make it an EU policy. Moreover, I mean, the only way you're going to get the requisite standardization, well, the compatibility, the uh, interoperability that I talk about is, I mean, either you, either you do it through NATO, or you do it through the EU. I mean, it'd be nice if we could do it through both, but until we resolve the Cyprus-Turkey issue, that's, there's no cooperation between the two at all, uh, even though we overlap about 80% in membership. But 
I said, I mean, we, ha we need to address it from all points and all sides. I mean, one thing we've done is, uh, I mean, we have uh, the cyber center and uh, the NATO center in Tallinn is open to the neutrals. And so, in fact, Finland and Sweden sometimes show more interest than uh, NATO allies in this regard. And now, uh, and even Austria is sending a full-time person to the center. And Switzerland is there. <laughs> So, um, so I, th I mean, there is something. Basically, it's the, the countries that have suffered under this uh, become aware. But so maybe the other way is to sort of organize cyber attacks on some of our NATO allies. We we have uh, two more questions, and I will say I have I, the Swiss have set up their own cyber command, and I actually met him uh, a couple months ago. So it's sort of interesting. The whole team. Go ahead. Oh, thank you. Hi, uh, Jill Doherty from CNN. I just wanted, as you were talking, um, Mr. President, about the um, stovepiping in the EU, and I'm just wondering, in terms of private companies, let's say in the United States, to a certain extent, they're a stovepipe too, because they don't want to uh, reveal their vulnerabilities. And I'm just wondering, in Estonia, do you have any legislation that uh, encourages slash, uh, slash forces companies to uh, institute at least some minimal level of security? Because some companies actually don't want to do that for some odd reason. Well, we've actually created the kind of um, infrastructure that, which provides security. Um, with the, with the, I, mean, I mean, our society is very different. If you get there, you'll see that. I mean, basically, we have complete penetration of the society through e-services, which are available to you and in a very well-encrypted form, uh, if you want. So if you're concerned about these things, then you have, I mean, basically, we sort of think of it as part of the, the state's job to offer that security. Secu I mean, we have far more, of, I mean, you guys, you, you have a country where it's, it's you, you, your identity can be established with uh, an electricity bill. Um, you know, we have a... 1,024-bit binary key code that you, with which you establish your identity. And that offers us, I mean, you know, it used to be 128. We've jacked it up because they, the bad guys keep getting, you know, and if they ever get to quantum uh, chips, we're all dead. But basically, the one, we see it as a government service to offer people the opportunity or the use of something which is far more secure in all kinds of transactions, be they legal transactions, monetary transactions. I mean, I, I mean, I do this too because I have no option. But you know, when you, you know, because I buy stuff from Amazon. But I, I mean, I can't believe I'm doing this. You know, I put in my credit card number, and then just to be secure, I turn the card around and put a three, three number code, and I type that in too, and that, then I'm supposed to feel like I'm really safe. Um, whereas, you know, you take the Estonian. Uh, key card and you sort of, then you do the, I mean, it, you, you establish two chip, and you, the chip is, is set, goes to a privately owned certification center that says this is a leg legal uh, connection, then you go to where you want to go through there, and then the bank or the, you know, the tax authorities or the medical authority, then they do the same process, they say this is legit, so it's, it's very hard to get in, and you can you can get in on an individual, but you know, 250,000 Mastercard, uh, you know, being stolen—that's not possible. You can steal one person if you really, 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 really work on it. In the back, uh, Sherry McGuire with Symantec Corporation. Um, given some of the comments that you've made this morning around the European Commission and the European Union and where they're at at a level of awareness right now, any comments about the recently uh, released draft of the data protection legislation? Uh, quite an extensive uh, compilation of different regulatory uh, measures and any thoughts about uh, potential impacts on innovation and the ability to deal with threats in the future? Well, I would say in general about that I'm not really actually familiar with the details of that legislation, but I would say we have uh, um, there is uh, an incredible amount of completely unnecessary paranoia about data protection in Europe. Uh, we see this all the time because basically we have a complete, completely computerized healthcare system. All data is on there, and uh, and which has a which should have a completely liberating effect on uh, the whole 
transformative effect on healthcare because basically in Estonia you own your data. You know, here you say get a second opinion. Well, you take your entire medical record, you can send it to anyone you want if you wish and say, well, I want another opinion. But anyone says, no, 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 we can't do this because someone might break into your records. When I say if you break into your records, you leave, I mean, it, you're flagged immediately. Whereas if you keep it all on paper and someone goes into the file and starts thumbing through it, I mean, maybe you can get a fingerprint. So in fact, cyber offers more personal data protection. I mean, an IT solution offers more personal data protection by far than anything that is, that is not computerized. Because no, there's no trail, there's no, I mean, you never know. You know, we know human nature isn't great. I mean, you know, we had this case where, you know, we had a policewoman who checked up on her boyfriend, but she got caught. <laughs> I mean, right away. I mean, she's like going through the files on her boyfriend, not, you know, the paper files, no one ever know. But she went into the computer system and immediately got, you know, wasn't the brightest person because basically if you go check, every person who goes to snoop around gets, you know, is fingered basically. So, so on the data protection, the battle we fight in Europe, uh, especially our country, um, is to change the people's understanding that, um, that somehow you have less privacy if you're online. Um, you do have less privacy if you're online without a secure system, but if you do have a secure system, then um, you're far more, your data are far more private than, um, than in any other form. Now I would say it also has much to do with the architecture of the system, and, and if you really are interested, I can tell you later about the architecture of the system, which is completely different from the way it's done in most other places, but in any case, it's very architecture dependent as well. So it's security and the architecture. Um, but, you know, it's, I mean, if you talk, you know, talk to German Datenschutz people, I mean, they, they just won't listen to me. Well, with that, I will say, one of the tests in America is to look in somebody's office and see if they still have a yellow legal pad. And if they're writing on that, you know that they have not yet had what I would call the conversion experience, where they realize the importance of cybersecurity. And I'd like to ask you to join me in thanking the president for raising our awareness and hopefully some others.